study conducted by Monash University has revealed that systematic racism within Australia's justice system is connected to the deaths of 151 Indigenous women. The study led by Professor Kylie Cripps highlights the vulnerability of Indigenous women to intimate partner homicides, with most of the 151 deaths over a 20-year period being entirely preventable. I'm joined by Professor Kylie Cripps, the Director of Monash Centre for Indigenous Studies, to speak further on her findings. First of all, thank you for joining us today on NITV Radio, Kylie. Thank you. Um, can you tell me what motivated you to conduct this study on Indigenous women and domestic violence, uh, particularly intimate partner homicides? Uh, so I was motivated to do this study because, you know, a couple of reasons. One was that we often uh, hear about the high incidence of domestic and family violence in our communities. Uh, we we don't um, necessarily hear about uh, what happens to our, our Indigenous women that have died as a result of domestic and family violence, and and that's important in the context that our nation stops for other domestic and family violence victims. For our Indigenous victims, the nation hasn't stopped. The Parliament doesn't stop, and in many respects, there's a silence around the deaths of our Indigenous women. And so, I'm I was very interested in understanding and exploring the circumstances around our women's deaths and also looking at ways in which we might have prevented these deaths earlier. So that's what I was motivated by. I mean, when you look at, at the stories that, that we reviewed, it is very much around honouring these women too, you know, in, in, the, in the fact that there has been such a silence. It's looking at these deaths and remembering that these are women that were loved and respected and valued by their families and their communities and they deserve the opportunity to, to be honoured and respected um, in the public domain and to be spoken with such respect. Uh, and that in being able to res- uh, to engage with their stories, uh, as I do in, in this paper, it is also to produce accountability, accountability to systems and services that have failed them in, in circumstances that arguably um, could have prevented their deaths in the first place. Well, in your opinion, why do Indigenous women experience higher rates of violence compared to other Australians? Um, so the reasons that, that we experience high rates is complex. Um, there are um, a number of significant issues um, that contribute to these high rates, and you know a lot of it has has to do with systemic issues around access to, to services. Um, it's uh, related to the social conditions um, in our environment. You know the high rates of, of unemployment, um, the lack of housing, and the social stresses that put that are put on our families. So it, it's being uh, honest and, and reflective of those conditions, but it's also reflecting on in those moments where our women experience violence. It's about how they're supported in those moments. When they call out for help, who's there to support them, and what kind of assistance are they being offered? Is it you know I've written previously about how it's often our unsung heroes in our communities that, that are providing the assistance because that assistance uh, comes with unconditional love from aunties and uncles in our communities that open their doors and their hearts to, to support our women in their times of need and, and their homes, right, to offer them beds when shelters are full um, and that women haven't been able to, to get 
safe places to stay in their time of need. So it, it is complex. There's, there's no easy uh, answer for, for causation. It, it's a whole host of, of complex issues that contribute to the experience of violence. But it, it is that, that point of, of thinking about who's there to support them in their time of need. Well, how do you define and understand systematic racism within the Australian justice system and how did it manifest in the cases you examined? Um, that's a very good question. I, what we did when we looked at those 151 cases was we particularly looked at, at in, in this first paper, at first responders, because in often in, in the um, circumstances of domestic and family violence, when people are in in trouble when things escalate to a point that's out of control, uh, they'll call triple zero. And so we started by looking at what were um, victims, uh, what did they receive in terms of a response when they dialed triple zero. We then went from from triple zero to to looking at, um, well, what was the response of police when they turned up on scene uh, to what was the response when women asked for... um, domestic violence orders or for um, breaches to those domestic violence orders to, to be um, dealt with. So I'll just take a moment and, and, and speak to you about the triple zero calls. Now, there were numbers of occasions in, in this um, sample where women had called triple zero. Now, these were women that you could hear in the background um, on the calls. They were crying. They were moaning. Um, they, you could hear that they were in pain. They were... Uh, you know, you could hear the violence in the background. Um, these were what the coroners had noted um, in their case files. Now, the police didn't respond to those calls because in many respects, these were calls where nobody communicated anything on these triple zero calls. You know, in, in these calls, you would have, you know, two, three, four calls from the same residence over the course of a night and early morning. And the coroners were asking in these uh, coronial investigations of the police officers and triple zero callers, you know, if you went to the residence on the second call or the third call or the fourth call, would the, the, the lady concerned have survived? It's a very pertinent question because when we think about the reasons why women are unable to speak when they make those calls, I think that that talks to the very nature of domestic and family violence. Um, For example, it may be that it's unsafe for her to speak. She's dialing, um, hiding in a bedroom or in the bathroom. And if she speaks, then he knows that she's she's calling for help and that's going to attract more violence. It may be that that she's got um, a head injury or that she's got a broken jaw and that she physically can't speak. But these are not reasons for us not to send emergency services to that address. Yeah. Well, my next question was going to be, how can the justice system be held more accountable for addressing the specific needs and safety concerns for Aboriginal women? Um, I think what's significant in these case files is that, you know, these are the worst case examples um, of where police... Uh, had a responsibility uh, to respond to these women's calls for help. Um, And it is incumbent upon uh, these police systems to review these similar case files and uh, and do as the coroners have suggested, and that is to examine them and understand where the failings were and to change practices 
so that uh, these deaths don't occur in future for the same reasons. But more than that, you know, what was significant in these case files was that these police officers um, and emergency service uh, operators operated outside their, their operational guidelines. So this is, is a, a, a reinforcement, if you will, that, you know, we have operational guidelines on domestic and family violence for a reason. And it is incumbent on professionals with uh, the responsibility to, to respond as, as first responders to, to these calls and for our women's calls for help, that they do so in accordance with their guidelines, not operate uh, uh, with uh, their own discretion in, in ways that um, compromise our women's lives. Well, are there any successful interventions or programs that have shown promise in addressing domestic abuse among Indigenous communities? Absolutely. There are uh, examples of uh, successful programs right across the country um, of Indigenous programs. And it it is, you know, if you were to go to um, the most recent Social Justice Commissioner June Oscar's report of of the women's... um, now I'm going to not remember what the name of the um, report is. Um, but if you go to her report, there are examples in her report uh, of the complexity of violence uh, and the social issues that are affecting our communities and what the community is doing to respond to those issues. So I urge people to to, uh, to engage with her report, but also to, to look at past Social Justice Commissioner's reports because they've also previously tabled examples across our country. Now, um, the Productivity Commission is also tabling examples of good practice. We um, have recently at Monash been successful in setting up a centre of excellence on the elimination of violence against women. So this is a research centre that's work will, in the uh, over the next seven years, will be about including uh, evaluations of programs across the country and across the Pacific. So learning from our neighbours who are doing uh, good work in this space. Lastly, I was wondering what your hopes are for the future in terms of improved safety and support for Indigenous women facing these types of violence. Um, My hope for the future is that that we learn from these women's deaths. You know, their lives mattered to all of us, but especially to their families. Um, We honour their memories by doing all we can to improve the systems, the institutional cultures and the societal attitudes that have failed to hear their cries for help. Um, you know, and I think that that's what's most important. We've got to break the silence uh, around um, our women's stories and actually hear their stories, appreciate um, their experiences and be responsive um, moving forward to ensure that uh, we prevent deaths moving forward. Well, Kylie, thank you very much for taking your time to speak with us today on NITV Radio. Thank you.